If you've got a Bible, open up to Hosea chapter 11. My name is Chad Kinser. I get to serve as our lead pastor here at Frontline Downtown. And uh, if you're a guest with us, it's a privilege to, to share this morning with you. Um, we, we've been in the book of Hosea for, for the last little bit now. We've got just a few weeks left. Uh, we're going to finish this book up right before Easter. It's really crazy to think that Easter is just three weeks away. Uh, it's just kind of nuts. This year has, has already gone by so fast. I feel like an old man as I say that. Like I always imagine when I was young, old people said, time goes by so fast. And I'm like, now I'm saying that. I'm one of them. Uh, but, uh, but we've been in Hosea the last several weeks, and again, we'll finish up the next few weeks. But I want to catch us all up to speed on what's going on, just in case you're jumping in today uh, or you're jumping in for the first time in a while uh, to kind of catch us where we are in Hosea chapter 11. So this book has been um, just crazy uh, when we think about the narrative of what's going on here, what God is communicating. The whole idea of what's going on through the first three chapters of Hosea I think it was so funny, just the, the energy in our services through the first three weeks was, was so powerful because the first three chapters of Hosea is just about God's uh, reckless, ever-pursuing love over his people, that he's going to win us down, he's going to chase us down, there's no cost he won't pay, there's no obstacle he won't tear down to have us as his people. And so what's going on in the book of Hosea is there's a picture going forward between the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer and what God's relationship to us is like. The picture is like God relating to us as a husband. We're in a marriage with him, that he's faithful to us. He's chasing us down like that of a husband. So those first three chapters are all about God's love. He will have us, he will chase us, he will win us. Really warm, really weighty, really secure. And then if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know that the chapter four through chapter 10 where we've been, the message takes a sharp right turn. From all this warmth and cheer and security of love Chapter four begins with God saying, I have a controversy with you. And the way we've talked about what's going on in four through 10 is as though, yes, we're in this relationship of covenant with God, but there's also been serial adultery on the table, spiritual adultery on our part, unfaithfulness to God. And so he's won us, that's true. He's reconciled us, that's true. But now we've got to go to marriage counseling. Now we've got to actually sit down in marriage counseling and talk about where Where is this pattern of adultery coming from? And that's what's going on in 4 through 11. And what's going on is God just unpacks for us. He unpacks for us our unfaithfulness. He gets very honest for us. And what's what's interesting is the last several weeks have not been chipper sermons. Like, in fact, Josh was joking last week as he preached the last one of those. He goes, man, I think we're really creating some space in our services (laughs) preaching through Hosea. Uh, Because it's just one of those ways where you're waking up and you're coming to church thinking, man, I want a really warm, encouraging sermon. And then Hosea 4 through 10. And it's just like God is accelerating through the turn every time, convicting us, confronting us, correcting us in our unfaithfulness. And that brings us to Hosea 11. The narrative keeps moving forward. God is still addressing us. This is still a narrative of God's covenant love with us. And in chapter 11, we return to God voicing his love. And I'll just tell you, as I'm approaching the sermon today, I have, I have kind of had some agony over the weekend because I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of what Hosea 11 means. When I read some books this week, kind of preparing for what, what's going on in Hosea 11, several biblical commentators were going to say that, that Hosea 11 might be the most shocking chapter in all of the Bible, when it comes to God's love for us. His divine emotions are on display and laid bare for us here in Hosea 11, maybe like they're not in the rest of the entire scriptures. And I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. So something that makes you really feel encouraged this morning, right? But Hosea 11, I'm looking forward to what God's got for us today. Let's begin by reading this passage, Hosea 11, 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. I'll read this passage, I'll pray, and we'll jump in from there. 
Hosea 11, verse 1, the word of Jesus speaks to us like this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, and they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke in their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to turn to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, he shall not rise up them, raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adamah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. This is the word of God to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I come to you now and I'm asking for a lot of help. I'm asking that you would help me by the, by the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. You'd help us by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you guide us into all truth? Would you spike up our minds and our hearts' attention to lean into what you're saying to us here? And God, would you help us somehow by your Spirit and by your mercy, would you help us consider and know afresh your deep love for us? I pray that we would leave here enamored and amazed and just sitting in the consideration of your all-encompassing love that we cannot outrun you. God, blow our minds today by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll never forget the night uh, that I was an absolute mess and my wife was as surprised as she has ever been. I'm talking about the night of our engagement. Uh, on the, I'll remember that night for several reasons. It was a special night, but there's one reason in particular. So my plan for my, my engagement to my wife now 11 years ago was really simple. It wasn't a big illustrious plan. I didn't have a jumbotron moment. I didn't have a plane flying across, you know, with a little tag that says, will you marry me? And we walk out in the driveway and see it there. It was a really simple plan. I wanted to ask my wife to marry me in kind of just the normal flow of our life. We're going to do this forever together. And I just want to, in the normal flow of our life and the things that we would normally do anyway, just stop in the middle of all that and say, hey, why don't we do this forever? Now, more words than that, but that was kind of the idea. And so it was a really simple plan. I was a poor graduate level student. And so my plan was to take her to dinner, a nice dinner, Wendy's. <laughs> and uh, the normal flow of our life, you know. I even gave her the value meal, you know, just a dollar, sweet. And uh, so we were going to go to Wendy's, and we were going to go there, and then after going to Wendy's, we were going to go to a little frozen custard shop in Fort Worth, where we went all the time, and we were going to study for a test I had the next day when I was in grad school. So we went to Wendy's, and uh, we went to the, the frozen custard shop, and 
all the while the night is going forward and I know what's coming once we get to the frozen custard shop and my heart is starting to pound with nervousness and with fear and with, I don't even know what's going to happen on the other side of this. I hope she says yes. And so the plan went down. We got to the frozen custard shop. I'm still holding myself together. We order our custard and we come outside of the frozen custard shop and there is this little area of of concrete tables right outside the front door. And we were going to sit down there and I prepared these flashcards. The way it was going to go down is I had these flashcards that had me study for my test, and she was going to roll through them. And uh, on the back of the fifth flashcard was, will you marry me? And it was on her side, not my side, right? <laughs> it wasn't like I was cueing myself to ask the question. It was <laughs> on her side. And uh, so that's how it was going to go down. So we sit there, and we start eating the frozen custard. And uh, I said, hey, let's get, into the, let's get into the flashcards. And so she's like, all right. And so... It was so crazy. I was so nervous wanting it all to go right. Like I started explaining to her how to use flashcards. Like she had never done that before. And so we go through the first one. And we go through the second one. And I'm crushing it. I know the answers on the back of the card. Because I only memorized the first five. (laughs) And so we go through the second one. And we get to the third one. And I start having tears well up in my eyes. And she looks at me and she goes, are you okay? And I go, yeah, I'm I had to look away from her. And I go, I, I, uh, I'm just really nervous about this test tomorrow. And she's like, well, you're doing great. And I'm like, it's only been two flashcards, you know? <laughs> so we go through the third flashcard. And we get to the fourth flashcard. And I have tears running down my face. <laughs> and she sets the flashcards down. And, and she's like, is everything okay? And I'm like, everything is fine. Can we just move on to the next flashcard? <laughs> Roll through it. And she pulls it open. And she looks at it. And she looks back at me and she looks at it. And she looks back at me and she looks at it. This better not be a joke. <laughs> By that time, I was already down on my knee. And I was sobbing like a toddler. And somehow, I got out the words, will you marry me? And she said yes, and then I told her for the first time that I loved her. And it was an amazing moment. I tell you that story this morning, not just to kind of walk you through the wildness of my engagement, but to tell you that there was something that dropped in me when I said those words. There was something that dropped in me significantly when I said those words, I love you, and when I heard them said back to me. I had wasted those words on all kinds of busted relationships before that one, and I knew with this one, I, I, I didn't want to say that until I could back it up with a kind of commitment, you know? And so when I heard those words, it was deep, it was meaningful, and I also felt the weight of responsibility, you know? So now here we are, 11 years later, and, uh, and I now see like way more of what those words even mean than the day I said them the first time. The fact that real love means not just cheerful love and cheerful fluff and cheerful warmth and sentiment in the midst of victory, in the midst of good times, in the midst of laughter. The real artifacts of love come in those moments of pain, in those moments of loss, in those moments of suffering, in those moments of confusion and anxiety and depression. Like that's, that's when real love has artifacts in real time, you know? And here's the thing, right? Like all of us know this. I'm saying something that all of us can relate to because love is a powerful thing. Love is a really powerful thing. All of us are looking for the depth of a kind of love that can hold us, that will stay true, and that will remain no matter what comes. Like all of us are looking for that. 
We're looking for that even from the earliest days of our childhood. That's why I've got, early, I've got young kids now and my, my oldest is playing basketball and she runs up and down the court constantly looking over the sideline, watch me, daddy. And why? Because we want love. We're hardwired for it. She's looking to love to validate her in the midst of every little movement on the court. But it's not just when we're young. All through our life, we're looking to relationships and we're looking to stuff to fill us, to hold us, to name us, to secure us. All of us are looking for love. And here's the problem with that, though. Amidst all the beauty of love, amidst all the love that's felt within marriage, even the best of marriages, even all the, the depth of love that's felt in friendships, even the friendships that have deep history, all of us know this, that we still get disappointed in these relationships. We still get disappointed. They still can't hold us. Many of us have sought after stuff, have sought after relationships to fill us, to hold us, and to name us. And we have all the stuff that we thought we would always wanted that would ultimately satisfy us, and yet we still find ourselves lonely at times in that marriage, lonely in our deepest of friendships. And our deepest longings still have a way of, in the midst of all the stuff we have and all the relationships that we have and all the love that we've shared and given away, we still feel like our deepest longings at very many moments are, are still go unmet. And so here's the reality for all of us. It's not that our deepest longings are wrong. It's not that our deepest longings for love, a love that can hold and name and secure, it's not that those are wrong desires. The problem just comes in the fact that very often we look to fill those desires in all the wrong places. The truth is you and I, we were made for love. We're made for it. But the only love that fills us and names us and holds us in the way that we want is in the infinite. It's in the forever, the eternal, the consuming fire of the love of God. And the reason I say it that way is this. The only, way that, the only reason that God's love is different is because his love is a love unlike any other. It will never be compromised. God's love will never be compromised because he himself and his character will never compromise. He remains true. He remains the same. God never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. Right? You were made for love. The infinite, eternal, forever, consuming fire of the love of God. And that's exactly what's coming forward for us in Hosea chapter 11. That's exactly what's coming forward for us. And he shows us three things. He shows us that the love of God is fatherly, it's sophisticated, and it's resolved. The love of God is fatherly, it's sophisticated, and it's resolved. Look back at verse 1. God's love is fatherly. It says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my sons. Get down to verse 4. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke in their jaw. And I bent down to them and I fed them. So throughout Hosea chapter 11, God is the one who's speaking. It's not Hosea the prophet. It's God speaking directly to his people. He's the voice. He's reflecting on his experience of loving Israel, loving his people, loving you and I amidst all of our unfaithfulness. As we read down through Hosea chapter 11, it's going to feel like we're reading a journal entry from God, like one of God's journal entries. He's telling of his own experience of what it's like to love us on his side of the relationship. And so the tone, with, without, without questions, unmistakable, begins with fatherly tone. He begins to speak of Israel as a child. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. The language here is adoptive and it's full of pride. 
the language here is, is fatherly. God's fatherly love flows from his own free choice. It flows from his own free will. His all-knowing choice, he sets his love on Israel. And I love what he does here because he references his long history of loving Israel all the way back to the beginning of it all at Exodus, at the Exodus, when they were slaves back in Egypt. And this is so huge that God reminds us of the history of his love here in this way. And here's why I say that. Because so many of us operate with this mentality of God's love that, that what God really loves about us is some future version of ourselves that is more put together and is better than we currently are now. That, that yeah, God loves me, but, but really I won't know the full benefits and the full weight of his love until I'm better, until I'm on the other side of this struggle, until I'm on the other side of this sin, until I'm on the other side of that, and then I'll really know God's love, then I'll really enjoy God's love. What God loves about me is a future better version of me. But that's just simply not true. You look at when he says he called out Israel, when he called him his son, when he loved him, he loved Israel, listen to this, when they were at their worst. That's when he set his love on them, when they were at their worst and had nothing to offer back to him. He set his love on his people at the worst version of themselves. The worst version of themselves, and he never turned back. And the same is true for us. The same is true for God's love to us. That's fatherly love. Look at the way God says it in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I think it'll be on the screen. He says, For you are a, this is right after they were rescued in the Exodus. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. And look at what he says in seven. It's not because, it's not because you are more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. So it had nothing to do with anything they had to offer to God. He says you were the fewest of all peoples. There was the least, there was a released return on investment in you. In verse eight. But, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So the love of God, it's not built on merit. It's not built on what you bring back to him. It's not built on your performance, how well you can do at keeping up appearances. It's not built on something that's with some jujitsu that he's doing on us that I'm going to love you as some sort of weird way to get something back in return. Look at all the favors I've done for you. Now give me what I want. He's not doing it that way. It's a love with no strings attached. It's real father love, real father love. Now, as I, as I say that this morning, I know that I'm speaking that in the midst of a room where there are a variety of reactions when you think of God as father. Me too. Me too. I'm saying this in a room where there, I know there are lots of dad wounds present here. Wounds from dads who were absent. Wounds from dads who abandoned you. Wounds from dads in this present room who were overbearing, overly passive, inattentive, abusive, just, just to name a few. I, I have those wounds too. But here's what's so beautiful about this. God isn't dumb to your wounds or to mine. God isn't dumb to them. 
He sees your wounds. He knows your wounds. And yet throughout the Bible, he consistently insists on explaining his love to us like that of a father. He insists on it. He sees wounds. He knows earthly fathers are imperfect, yet he still chooses this image. He still chooses this picture. And why? It's not because God's trying to confuse you. It's not because God is trying to resurface old hurts in your minds every time you see the word father and trigger trigger painful memories. No. The reason he insists on being known in his love to us as father is because he's trying to redeem for us all of our broken experiences and show us what a real father is like. He's trying to buy back all of those old images that went wrong and show you what a real dad is like. Just because someone bears the title or position of father does not mean they're a father. And God steps forward with father love, not on merit, not on performance, not to get something in return. He loves us at our worst and never turns back. This is father love. And so here's, I just want to say this today. This is kind of the most profound thing for me thinking about this this week. For some of you, there's a fear that you have when you think about God as father. There's a fear that you have in reading too much into that title, reading too much into that dynamic of him as father out of a fear that you need to protect yourself lest you think too much of him as a father and then let be, be let down by him like a defense mechanism. I can't think too much of what a real good dad would look like lest God start looking like my bad experience with a father. And so there's a hesitance in you to read too much into it. Listen, we ought to never hesitate that way. That the only danger, the only danger in this room, the only danger for you and for me is that we would go on throughout our lives reading too little into who God is as father and then somehow settle for something less. That's the only danger for knowing who God is and his father love. He leads, he protects, he provides with no strings attached. He's a father. And so the first thing he wants us to know about his intense love for his people is that he is a father. The second thing, though, is that his love is sophisticated. His love is sophisticated. Look back at verse 2. It says, the more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and and burning offerings to idols. It says, the more they were called, the more they ran away. And then look at verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms and they did not know that it was I who healed them. Okay, so here's what's interesting about this passage. When you think about God's overwhelming, consistent, no strings attached fatherly love, and then you consider Israel in their repeated despondent response to him, repeated adultery on God, this verse is absolutely crazy. He says, the more I called after them, the more I pursued them, the more I provided for them, the more I sought to protect them, the more they ran from me. The more I went after them, the more I called, the more they ran. It goes on down in verse seven and says, my people are bent. My people are bent. They're hardwired, it seems, from turning away from me. The more I call, the more they run. And so you see that and you're going, this is crazy. Why would they do that? Look who's loving them. Look, who, look how he's loving them. Why do they keep responding like this? It's easy for us to read an Old Testament passage and abstract it from our lives as though that's about them and not about us. But the reality is if you take a hard look in your own heart, 
this is not just about ancient Israel's response to God. This is absolutely our response to God. Isn't it? This is absolutely our response to God. Think about the way that so often in our lives we live to carry out life in the way that we want it, regardless of what God would say. And we act like our own risk management agent, thinking about our own desires, our own impulses, the the way that we want to carry out our life, regardless of what God says. And we act like a risk management agent saying, well, it's not that bad. God surely understands I have desires. I have needs. God, God is the God of love. Surely he'll forgive me. And we start playing games with his forgiveness. And then, and then on the other side of it, we wake up the next morning and we have that horrific aftertaste of sin in our mouth. And we wish we could take it all back. And we regret presuming on his grace. We regret the fact that we preferred that rather than holding on to his wisdom and his hold on us. It's absolutely true. We are Israel in this way. The more God calls us, the more you and I run. The more he calls us to depths and communion with him, the more we one run. But here's what's crazy about his love. It's sophisticated. It sees bigger picture. He still stays. He stays. And look back at verse three. It says, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I was the one who taught them to walk. I took them up in their arms and they did not know that it was I who healed them. What God is saying is, He's lamenting. He's lamenting about the the scandal and the irony of our sin. He's saying, do you not realize that the life, the energy, the resources, even the intelligence that you have, that you use against me to question me, to complain against me, and to rebel against me, and to disobey me, those are all capacities that I myself have given to you. The energy that you and I use to walk out on God in various moments of our life is energy that was given to us by God. He's saying, how quick are you to forget? I was the one who taught you to walk. Don't you remember when you were there toddling along and I was holding you by the arms, cheering you on as you took steps? I taught you to walk. I was the one who healed you. I am the one who's given you life. And you use that very life to walk away from me. This is staggering, isn't it? That is, that is staggering and difficult to think about. But, but I'll be honest, it gets even bigger than that. Look down at verse 8 and what he says. And I'll be honest, as we read verse 8, I still have no idea what to do with this verse. Look at what God says in verse 8. In the midst of all of that, God says, Yet how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adamah and how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me and my compassion grows warm and tender. God is reflecting on their disobedience and he's reflecting on these things. and He's reflecting on the way they walk away from him. And yet he, he comes down in the sophistication of his love. The way that we've rebelled against him rightly ought to have us judged and in condemnation. Yet God in his sophistication says, he looks at us, he says, but I can't give you up, but I can't hand you over. And what's interesting about the Hebrew words that's used here is that it suggests strong emotion, that of weeping. When God says this, he's crying over us. Like I, I mean, I, I read that this, I have no idea what to do with that. My, my unfaithfulness, my sin, my rebellion against God, yours, God weeps. 
He says, my heart recoils within me. He's saying, I'm shattered on the inside. I'm shattered. I'm torn to pieces, but I can't give you up. I can't hand you over. I won't hand you over. I won't do it. I won't do it. So just let that sink in for a second. This is, this is the God of the universe. He has all power and all authority. He, he's, he's completely sufficient in himself. He's not lacking in anything. He's not served by you and I in any way. And yet, in the sophistication of his love, he has made himself so involved with us, so enmeshed with us, that he's been willing to make himself vulnerable enough that someone like you and me could make him come to tears. What kind of love is this? What kind of God is this? Who would think about us, that he's mindful of us? Who are you and I, that he is this mindful of us, that you and I, little specks of dust in the midst of his vast creation, can drive a shaft in his heart? Verse 8 is unbelievable. I, I can't hand you over. I can't give you up. I won't give you up. His love is fatherly. His love is sophisticated. But now there's a last question because the passage doesn't end here. And so how does God respond? Like, what's he going to do? Because what's beautiful about this passage is this is not just about a a passive father who's going to let his kids just walk away from him and just say, well, I really wish they wouldn't, but I'm just going to stay here on the couch. That's not what's going on here. So the question we have to ask and answer is how does God deal with the tension of his love and our sin, his authority and our rebellion? Look at verse nine. Look at what he says. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim for I am God and I'm not a man. I'm the holy one in your midst and I will not come to you in wrath. God's love is resolved. Did you hear that? Did you hear what he just said here? Because this flies in the face of so much of what we think oftentimes and what our culture for sure thinks about how God deals with us. Like he's some angry grandfather in the sky that's just waiting for a moment to pounce on us with judgment and scream at us to get off of his lawn. Like that's what so much of our culture thinks about God, that he's just this anti-God against everything. But that's not the picture he gives here. Like that's not the picture he gives here. He says, I'm not a man. I'm God. He's different than us. If you and I were in God's place, you and I would have bailed long ago on the kind of unfaithfulness and despondency like ours to him. You and I would have bailed long ago. And yet God says, but I'm not a man. I'm God. I'm not a man. I'm God. And notice he says, I'm the holy one in your midst. I'm the holy one in your midst. See, this is so huge for us when we think about how God responds to us. This is exactly the opposite of how most of us think he deals with us and looks at us in our sin and our shame. Most of us think that God runs away from us. He distances himself from us. He he goes away in disgust, but that's not what it says. It says he's the holy one who's even in your midst. He's actually taking a step toward you. 
He's actually taking a step toward me. He takes a step toward us in our sin and our shame. I'm the holy one in your midst. And notice his step toward us is not happening with a fist of judgment. He says, I will not come in wrath. I'm not coming to you in wrath. And so hear this. God knows every bit of your baggage. He knows every bit of it. The stuff that you know about and the stuff that you know about but you don't want to deal with and you pretend like it's not there. He knows every part of you. And he's never once flinched. He steps towards us. He moves towards us. His love is a love of resolve. And look at how he does so. How does he move toward us? It's not, it's not in wrath. It's not in anger. Verse 10 and we'll be done. Look at what he says. They shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the West. So how does God take a step toward you and I? How does God in his love take a step toward us? He's fatherly. He's sophisticated. The more he calls, the more we run. But how does God deal with this tension of his love, our sin, his authority, our rebellion? How does he do it? He roars. He roars. It's the greatest sound in all of the Bible. God roars for his people, for you. And listen, this is not a roar that's meant to cause us to fear. It's not a roar like that. This is a roar like a lion who's being aroused to defend his cubs. This is a roar of a warrior king who's rising up to win his people. That's the kind of roar this is. The Hebrew word for trembling here, when it says, when he roars, we'll come trembling to him. The Hebrew word is not a negative term, like in fear. The Hebrew word actually means melted in relief. When he roars, we're melted in relief. It's a roar of defense. It's a roar that scatters all of our enemies and all of our would-be suitors who tempt us to run away from him. He roars and he scatters them. So you hear that and you go, wait a second, God roars. I've never heard that before. Where can I hear that? How how do I know he roars? Is he just telling me he roars here? And that's just kind of it. And you're just kind of making some spectacle of it in a sermon. How can I hear the roar? Where can I see the roar? How do I know this is true? The promised roar of Hosea chapter 11 can be heard at the cross of Calvary when God put forward his son to bear all the punishment for your sin and mine. The reason that God does not come in wrath is because he put forward his son, Jesus, your conquering king and mine, and he absorbed all the wrath of God that was rightly pointed at us. That's why he doesn't come in wrath. And so hear the final words of Jesus in his roar at the cross, John 19 and verse 30. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The roar of God, 
the roar of God. Anything that would ever come between you and God, anything that would ever prop itself up to separate you from God, anything that would ever keep God from getting to you, he's torn it down. Every obstacle in the roar of Jesus finished. 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 The love of God is so much better than any love we could ever experience down here because it's not a fleeting feeling. It's not merely an emotion. It's strong. It's gritty. It's resolved. It roars. Finished. Finished. And so the love of God for you, the love of God for me, there's no strings attached. There's nothing to make up for. There's nothing to cover over. You don't have to explain anything away. There's nothing to prove. Just finished. Finished. Not based on merit. Not based on performance. Not to get something back in return. Real father love. Sophisticated. A bigger picture. Though we run, yet he stays. Though we run, he's resolved. I won't give you over. I can't give you over. I will not hand you over. This is the love of God. This is the love of God. And I'll be honest, as I even teach this this morning, I told you in the beginning, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of this passage. Sometimes I'll be honest, I have no idea what to do with God's love. I have no idea what to do with it. I feel like there's got to be something I got to prove and now show off. I feel like there's got to be something I got to do in return to really earn it and secure it down. I feel like there's got to be something I got to do to make sure his attention will always be bent to me. His ear will always be attentive to me. Finished. Finished. It's already yours. All who would look to him. I don't know what to do with God's love. You can't outrun it. You can't prove it will never go away because it doesn't go away. I don't know what to do with it. Here's what I do know. I can't live without it. I can't live without it. And neither can you. You were never made to. You were made for the fatherly, sophisticated, resolved roar of God. You were made for it.